Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. My name is Brooke McCallery. My name is Ben McCallery and welcome to episode four of the season. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, it's good to be doing an interview. I know. We're back to the Brooke interviewing someone else other than me yes. format. It's wonderful. It's it nice is wonderful. As, it's nice as it is to talk to no, you. No, just <laughs> trust me. Okay. It's wonderful. It is. And this episode was such a genuine delight. Uh, I speak to Jess Davis, who I have spoken to before and was lucky enough to do an event with in Brooklyn a few years ago. Uh, Jess is quite honestly one of my favorite people. I feel, as I say later in the episode, I feel like we're probably twins. <laughs> but uh, you you would probably remember Jess from Folk Rebellion. She started a, an amazing um, community newspaper based around Folk Rebellion, Slow Living. and uh, But Jess has, over the last couple of years, really gone through a, a metamorphosis, I suppose, personally in terms of how she lives in the world and how she sees her work in the world, uh, but also in terms of her th her thoughts on like slow living and, mm. um, you know, analog living. And uh, we have a really juicy conversation about that and what it looks like to her, which ties in, uh, wasn't planned, but ties in quite nicely with the making chapter of care. So it's... Um, yeah, it's been, it, it was just, I've literally just finished talking to her. So I don't normally do the intro straight away afterwards, but it was such a pleasure. Now, Jess did that really interesting diary, audio, audio diary during, yeah. it was a video diary during, uh, and kind of like sort of basically diarizing or journaling her real life experiences of COVID in Brooklyn. Yeah, in New York. So she she released that film a few months ago and it's called What Day Is It? And it chronicles the first 100 days of uh, COVID lockdown in New York. And it is, it, it's... it's Heart-wrenching. It is heart-wrenching. I, I was listening to it when you were watching it, mm. so I thought it was just audio, but uh, we were, I think... I don't know, lying in bed or yeah, something. Yeah, it was like a Sunday morning. And just listening to it and just like tears just streaming down my face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I Heartbreaking. It, it really is. And Jess talks about the process of, of documenting that, but also why it was so important to her to document it mm. and why remembering is going to be such an important point or part of, you know, our collective recovery over the coming months and years. And then she uses that to sort of talk about what it is like in New York at the moment and mm. the probably temporary lessons and um, shifts in, in people's attitudes and the way that they're living. And, um, we, yeah, we have a fantastic conversation about that and how the fabric of New York has changed as a result of the last 18 months for the better. Um, yeah, it really makes me want to go there. I know, I know. <laughs> Like every movie set in New York, New York is a character. Yeah. So in this podcast, is New York another interview subject? Yes. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so New York, tell me, what do you think about it? <laughs> no, this is just a, a really wide-ranging but um, heart-centered conversation with Jess. Now, we talk about a lot of uh, external things. We talk about um, Jonathan Fields' archetype kind of um, – quiz that he has created. We talk about that towards the end. Um, we talk about Cal Newport. We talk about Jess's, obviously her documentary, her work, her writing. So I'm going to create a complete list of all of those things for the show notes, which uh, if you just head over to the website, the new website, mm. uh, slowyourhome.com and um, you'll, you'll find Jess's lovely face under the what's new tab or under the podcast tab if you're listening to this later in life. Um, and if you're in Australia, check out the events page. Yes, please. So that's newly minted as well. It is heading towards book tour time. We're kind of cautiously optimistic that, that COVID won't rear its ugly head any further than it already has. And I've got quite a few event dates already lined up. Lots of really good conversations with people. Um, and I'd love for you to come along. 
I think I mentioned it earlier in the season. I can't. I I, I would love to go everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but if you and and if your hometown, your favorite bookstore is not on that list, and you think that there's a fair chance that they would like to host an event, please get in touch via the website, and we'll see what we can do. Because I really am genuinely looking forward to like meeting people face to face and talking and, and digging into care. Uh, and what care means. Now, I think there may be a few new listeners here today because of Jess. If she's pointed you our way, welcome. Uh, if you're in the States or anywhere that's not Australia and New Zealand, you can now get a copy of Care shipped to you for free anywhere in the world if you go to bookdepository.com. Um, or alternatively, there's a link over on my website for you to do that. So, yeah, worldwide shipping on Care. Awesome. Let's just get into this conversation. Let's do Sounds it. like a cracker. It is. Jess, hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? So good for seeing you. It is so wonderful to see you. It's been such a long time, but it feels like yesterday. I know. That was like three years ago, more. Yeah. yeah. Sat in that bar in Brooklyn. That was such a fun night. It was spectacular and I can't wait to do it again. <laughs> I know. I'm holding space for it. It's going to happen. Same. Epic travels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How's New York? Like, how is life in New York? And uh-huh. Brooklyn? It's so much better. It's, um, you know, I feel like I've seen so many iterations of this city over my two decades of living here. And uh, she is showing off right now. And it's like one of those really special times that is in this bubble that you know it's only going to last for a few months and you're either here for it or you're not and she's showing off like it's amazing it's this weekend was just wild there's people everywhere it's like you're reading in the papers the youth have just overrun the city they're everywhere and it's just celebratory it's really really celebratory and special but it also feels incredibly old school which I love, you know, my nostalgic ass. And so it feels old school in the good ways of New York. You don't want to go old school in the bad ways. Right. So it's very communal. There's not a lot of like capitalistic marketing in your face, which was something really interesting to notice. Um, A lot of the big box stores and, you know, nationwide retailers had packed up shops. So you're kind of left with this like, mom and pop like we run this city sort of feel right now and I don't think it's going to last very long but I'm enjoying the heck out of it that's really cool and I know that these are hard won kind of moments of joy for you guys very much um and I I'm delighted to hear that I really am I think it's a really interesting question actually about what we as like a collective are going to value on the other side of you know this era uh whatever that looks like in and it's just fascinating to me that you immediately recognize that the capitalistic kind of approach has disappeared even temporarily mm-hmm. and along with that comes joy and community and you know like liveliness and I don't know I just think that there is something so important there and it's my hope that we don't forget Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And a lot of people um, have had their eyes open or shined a light upon, you know, sort of whatever cliche you want to use that, you know, they can be a part of the solution just simply by voting with their dollars. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? What do you focus your attention on and, and get a little noisy and what do you want to protect? And so I think You know, when everything closed up shop so quickly here in New York, and I know everybody everywhere locked down, um, and I hate to be one of those, oh, but it's different here, but it, it, it was different here on many different ways, but one of the ways was that when it locked down, you very quickly saw who was like, I'm out, I'm out, I can't make money here, I'm out, I'm gone, and it, it was jarring. To see that, you know, there's these people, there's different types of people and businesses who come into an area, specifically New York, and 
we were able to see the ones who were here just with the sole purpose of taking from the city. And that was taking money, you know, making money. And they weren't willing to stick it out. They saw that they could cross the rent off their bottom line. And so they closed up 14 shops and they're gone, put everybody out of work, as opposed to, you know, the restaurant owner or the small mom and pop who has eight stores throughout all five boroughs that was running mutual aid out of the backyard and trying to figure out how to like support the local artists. And, and it's just, it was just wildly unavoidable. And so now all these people who didn't think twice about shopping on Amazon or being happy that the new, you know, um, Dwayne Reed was replacing the old bodega on the corner is really thinking about what it is they're losing or opening themselves up to in the future. So our bodega owners were the only ones who stayed open when the city was entirely desolate. It was the only place you could go and find medicine if you needed it or toilet paper if you needed it or fruit if you needed it because guess what? CVS, Dwayne Reed, like Rite Aid, those places, they were done. They were shut. And so you realize that like these are real people versus um, just these corporations that are faceless. And mm. I think that, you know, I've always wanted that connection in small town feel because I remember what it was like before New York became what it is today, which is, I mean, it's always been a place to make money, but it's a lot safer now and it's a lot trendier now. And so it's kind of been, I always say like Disney-ified, like a little whitewashed or clean washed or something. So you have a lot more people coming in. I'm okay with a little bit of the grit and the grime if it helps us keep our soul. And so I think mm. a lot of other people saw that too. Well, I think, I think that is a soul, isn't it? You know, everyone's got grit and grime to them. That's um, true. You know, so I think that that's an important part of uh, the wholeness of a place. Very much. Very much so. Yeah. That gives me a lot of hope, what you just shared, uh, because I guess my fear was, and our experience has been totally different here in Australia, but my fear was that people will forget and move on. Like that, in, this is going to sound horrible, in Australia things didn't get so enormously overwhelming in terms of numbers of cases and deaths that, um, that everyone we knew was affected. You know, it didn't yeah. get to that point. And my, I guess... Yeah, my, my hope is that we can all tap into that soulfulness of a place or yeah. a group of people or a community. And remember, right? We have to remember. Um, it, you know, I made this film, uh, short video, whatever you want to call it, uh, a few months back on the year anniversary of lockdown for the sole purpose that just for 12 months, I kept saying, we can't forget. Like, we just can't forget. I'm already forgetting and I have to make sure I don't forget. And um, so for me, it's like, we have to remember and then try and live and act that way. And after 9-11, there was very much this new soul to the city and this camaraderie amongst New Yorkers. And I'd say that lasted for a couple of years. And then, you know, people stopped pulling over for fire trucks and ambulances and all the things that New Yorkers, you know, used to do. And so I think, I think it's going to change. Um, I hope it stays. Uh, the thing mm. I'm most excited about that I will tell you just kind of off the subject on the subject is the rat race is gone. The speed of New York is not there. And right now, New Yorkers who have lived within it for as long as we have are like, this is bliss. This is amazing because we get everything we want and love about New York, but the grind is gone because office culture is not back yet. There's still no semblance of time because office culture is not back yet. So you don't have rush hour on the subway. I mean, rush hour now could be seven o'clock on a Friday night because everybody's going out or it could be at 10 o'clock in the morning because people are taking their time getting to wherever they're going. And so that hustle's gone. I don't think the hunger is gone. I just think the speed at which we do it has kind of been paused and I would give anything to keep it like this. I know it won't last, right. but for a little bit. Yeah. And I think even if it doesn't last collectively, there's no way that a change like that, even temporary, could not impact 
some people in the way that they view themselves and the way that they choose to live going forward. So it may not be like this moment of, of change, this delineating point, but it could certainly be that for individual people. And yes. I think that's how you see societal, like that's how things change. They don't all happen overnight because people right. like things the way they used to be. Yes. Or what they know. Yeah, exactly. And if it's a lot of these people, it's all they've ever known. Like I, I, love here. I mean, Beyonce finally coming out and realizing like, she's just literally never stopped. She has never stopped. And that the pandemic forced her to do that. And so I think New Yorkers across the board, no matter what your um, career is or how long you've lived here, we're forced into this thing that you and I have been talking about for a decade, if not longer, which is that you have to pause and slow down. And like, we don't have to live this way. And um, I'm curious to see who's going to keep it. I mean, the signs mm. are kind of showing that, you know, I think they said 30% of millennials are after the pandemic's over switching career paths entirely. Um, restaurant workers that are like working 12 hour shifts, you know, six, seven days a week are completely opting out of the industry because they realize what it felt like to actually maybe be calm once in a while. So it's going to be a long sort of, you know, look ahead or look back, however you want to think of it, of what really this did to everyone. But I see a lot of good, a ton of good. That's brilliant. It really is. That has lifted my heart in untold ways. So I'm so glad to hear all of that. And I guess um, I want to come back to your film because I absolutely loved it. I laid in bed one Sunday morning and I watched it and I cried the whole way because it is just like you put your heart on a screen and it was palpable, you know, the, the loss and the fear and the need to remember it was like, well done because thank you, you, you communicated it so beautifully and so humanly um, and it's just gorgeous. So thank you very much. It was a, it was a late, I'd say it was a labor of love, but it was a labor of loss. And um, mm. uh, the only way I could, think about, you know, even like my family didn't get it right. They, they live five hours away. They didn't understand like what it felt like to sit here and, and feel and see and hear everything that we experienced um, that thankfully so many other places didn't have to, and to be a mother in that process. And so I kept thinking about it and I was like, well, there's what's happening in the real world around me, which is very visual and, and, and you can hear it. And then there's what's happening in my head of like how I'm processing this. And so I understand that some of the things that I say can sound terrifying because in that moment we were terrified. You have to remember there was thousands of people dying a day and we had no idea how they were getting sick. Like we were still washing groceries by hand and like not taking the mail inside. And so you, you were terrified. And so I needed to preserve those emotions cross-referenced with like the juxtaposition of we're baking bread and I'm making my son think everything's okay. Like, it's just, it was so polarizing, you know, to, for, for me, for my experience as a mother of having to try and act like you had it together while inside you were just absolutely falling apart because you saw what was falling apart around you. And so um, I took my writing, my journal writing, and that became the narration. And then I collected items like artifacts of things that I was just seeing that we were using that we picked up on the street. And I just started taking video and which is very, it's not my medium. You know me, I hate my cell phone. I don't have it on me a lot of the time. Um, I don't believe in constant documentation of life. Like I just really want to be present, but it was happening at such crazy speeds that I knew if I didn't preserve it, like with video or these artifacts or my writing, I, I wasn't going to, no one, one, no one would believe me. And two, mm -hmm. I wouldn't remember it. And your brain to heal itself from trauma rewrites these stories and these narratives. And so I just, I think it was my experience from 9-11, um, one, never processing that grief correctly until decades later, and then forgetting and rewriting so much of it that I was like, I need to save this. And so that was the end result. And I'm sorry I made you cry. 
Um, but <laughs> that was a lot of, a lot of responses. And um, I'm not saying that was my goal, but I just wanted everyone to feel what it felt like. Well, I think, um, don't, please don't apologize either for making me cry because it was, uh, it was beautiful and brutal at the same time. And um, it, I felt closer to you in terms of being able to recognize some of that, like you're, you were living the grief and then you were living that, that tension as a mum. And I, I just, I, I really thought it was phenomenal. Um, so please don't apologize Thank for you. making me Thank cry. You. But I also think, you know, it's when we lose someone, right? What all you want is for people to remember them. And while it was a remembering of your experience and the senses of that experience, it was also a remembering and a, a record making of the people that New York was losing at the time too. Yeah. Uh, and I just think that as humans, that's, that's one of our... Um, our main drives, I think. And perhaps that's why so many of us are intent on marking our space in the world on social media or whatever it may be. It's like, don't forget me. Right. You know, this is what I add up to. Yes. Don't forget me. And it's, it, I mean, sure, that's a problematic kind of way of doing it, but it's very human and I get it. I really get it. Say that um, the, the, the a person stays a lot alive as long as they're remembered or something mm -hmm. along those lines. And so, you know, the icons of the world, they've left something behind so that they are constantly remembered. Not, I, you know, I wasn't trying to do that. I'm very happy to have this left behind. But for me, it was like you said, it was the, the my fellow New Yorkers. And I think of New York City as a my first love as a person. Like I speak of it very much of like this, like being in my life. And um, I wanted just like an ode to her and what she was going through, especially back then. You have to realize so many people were saying she's dead, like and turning their back on her. And I was just appalled. And I was like, how could you forget so quickly who this city is and who she is and what she does for us and how is she going to be the same? By no means. But how exciting is that? Like we get a new version of her, you know? Yeah. Exactly. And I, yeah, I think it's just wonderful. Um, I want to change tack a little bit because I know during, I can't remember the timeline, but during the first kind of stages of lockdown or perhaps just before you were doing this series um, that you were writing on your newsletter where you were kind of breaking up with your iPhone and shifting towards using the light phone. Um, and I guess I'm curious how that tied into 2020 um, and whether or not you felt yourself, I know you were sort of using your iPhone to document um, in some parts, but was there a shift in the way, I guess you were using tech um, and, and moving away from it at the same time? So I stopped and restarted the light phone experience like five times. Um, once the pandemic, I would say with COVID, I was kind of hyper aware. And I think this just goes back to who I, I am as a person. I was really aware of what was happening before a lot of people were willing to recognize what was happening. And I think that comes from, I love to read um, and find data and have like science be supportive of these things. And just when I was reading this scientifically and data-wise, there was making no sense to me how this was not in New York when I knew that of course it was in New York, but like there's the science just hadn't caught up with it yet. So um, when that was all coming in, so like I say that because I was thinking about this in December, January, and February. I had N95 masks sent to my house in January. And like, we didn't go on lockdown until March 15th or something like that. And uh, so the light phone at first was really good for my mental health to step away from my obsession with learning about what was happening. And it, it, it was like that. I see this thing, but no one can hear me. No one's listening to me. And so I thought the more information I would consume that the smarter I would get and therefore people would listen to me. And it's just not the case. People heard when they want, you know, when they were a told by an authority figure or, you know, somebody they trust um, or when they wanted to hear, there was no in between. And so 
the, having the light phone was great, but I chucked it aside as soon as there was a necessity for um, what I thought was uh, like safety. You know, the more I learned, the safer I would be. And so I needed that phone, the iPhone back in my hand. And I think like everybody else in the world, I fell um, victim to doom scrolling and uh, internet outrage over what was happening. And like, I had a family text chain. I have three brothers and sisters and my parents and, you know, you're sending out like the latest article and the numbers and the stats and the this, and it, you know, here it very much felt like if we didn't know this stuff, we were going to get sick and die. Like that was the thought, you know? Um, so poor light phone experiment turned into a brick in the corner of where all of us go to die. But the good thing is, is after the whole process of kind of living this and it becoming normal and getting away from the fear and understanding it more, I was able to revisit that again and uh, had a lot of fun with it. And I really thought that I was going to be able to stick to it because I've been trying to get up with my phone forever. And this thing happened in the pandemic where I have my friends who I've had forever. They've known me since I was six. These are my core group of people. I have my friends and acquaintances, which are a different group of people, but don't know me that way. And then I have like the friends that are really just my kids' parents. And for me, they were all very segmented. Well, when something like this happens, you realize very quickly that those lines all blur and maybe I made them up to begin with for whatever reason, because I know a lot of people who live where they are all one people. And so the only reason that my son kept his mental health throughout the pandemic was because of the community of moms and here um, in Brooklyn. And so I, the long and the short of it is there is a group text with 26 parents on it that helped from everything from we have COVID, you know, we need to quarantine our kids, help us, what do we do? To, oh my God, we have to go get tested. To my parents are sick, we need to fly out of town. Can you watch our dog? Every type of thing that you would have typically turned to your own parents or your best friends for, but they weren't around and you couldn't see them. It became this close-knit unit. And so when I switched to the light phone, I got dumped off text chain that text chain that I always hated, that I was like, oh, another text, group text. This thing became my life raft. And these people who I always thought of as um, in between or like transient or somebody that was a part of my life now, but wouldn't be forever, have become some of my greatest friends. And so I went back to the old iPhone because I had to be a part of that group for Hayes and um, for myself. And now, it's okay because I think I finally have struck that balance with the iPhone where I don't feel like I have to live completely without it. So I toggle between the light phone and the iPhone depending on where I am and what I'm doing. But when my iPhone is on, it's not on me, it's like away from me. And I actually, I just disdain, I have disdain for it. So therefore I don't engage with it a lot. So I guess what you um, discovered in a new way was community you know it was a reframing again of community and I'm exactly like you in terms of text chains and you know um like the, that kind of use of tech it has always bugged me like it has always felt mm -hmm. like a a weight on my chest um mm -hmm. but I think that this complete shift in the way we view community and in the way that we can now like I probably have been disdainful of tech use in years gone by. The last 18 months has showed me that it is incredibly beneficial when we are in physical isolation. You know, my family did a, a weekly Zoom call and we just talk shit and, you know, whatever. It, it, there was nothing profound happening there except that we were connecting. And similarly yeah. with you, with, you know, your community that sprung up around your family, uh, it's I think seeing those, and I understand that, like that stratification almost of friendships that you you had, um, but it's not kind of a hierarchy necessarily. It's just 
different, you know, different layers serve different purposes. And, and just a note that uh, it felt like to me, the technology was finally being used for how it was intended, right? Um, it wasn't a replacement for dinners or hugs or, you know, spending time with people because we couldn't do those things. We would much rather do those things, but we couldn't. This was a utility for help, for asking an important question, for a quick information. Um, it provided, yeah, it was, a, it was a tool. And that was really just unbelievable. And so now, yeah, after this, I'm going to meet some of those girlfriends of mine and say hello in real life. Oh, that makes me so happy, Jess. That makes me unbelievably happy. Um, so I think something else that you have written about a little um, with this sort of reframing of tech in your life was that you picked up an, uh, an old passion project, which is like analog photography. Are you still playing around with that? Yes, but I had to give my, that gorgeous like a camera back to them and so now I'm become like a snob so I would have shot any film with any camera but once you take photos with that it's like how do you ever go back I mean I guess it's a, people who drive a fancy car for the first time or something and they're like you just can't um but no I am I am I am I uh am saving my pennies to buy one of those cameras for myself because it was a loaner that they provided to me just um for creativity and you know just to see how it went and it was um it was like finding an old part of myself again because I mean I used to have dark rooms in my apartments I'd build them in closets or basements and I'm realizing that I what I liked about it so much was the space that it gave me in time. So going out and shooting was alone time. You know, I'm introverted. I get my energy when I'm away from people. So I didn't shoot portraits. I shot just like street scenes and things that I saw. And so it made me super hyper present and it allowed me to go and roam and explore and get lost. And so I rediscovered that again. And then um, to be able to take that and, you know, have it developed in the patience that requires it. it was all the things that I love and so it was really fun and then to share it with Hayes and him be like where's the photo I don't understand where's the photo show me the screen and it blew his mind and so now he is taking photos and I'm so happy because he would have never known it and he just thinks it's so cool the concept of taking a photo and not knowing what it looks like well, that, I mean, that's completely alien to our kids' generation. Yes. Like, he's like, what if it comes out bad? <laughs> I'm like, lots of those photos come out bad. Exactly, exactly. But, like, it's worth it for the, you know, the one that you get that just captures whatever it is that you were trying to, um, you know, trying to capture out of like 24 images, you get one and there's just, it's like treasure hunting. It is. And, and it's also, I mean, it's nice to go back to where like imperfections are okay. And sometimes celebrated, you know, I realize how glossy his life is, no matter how much I try and not make it that way. It's just how the world is right now. And so everything has been, yeah, just uh, perfected, if you will. And so mm the idea that someone would want a photo. And so I ended up taking out my photos from my teenage years. And he's like, no one's looking at the camera. Everyone's eyes are red. And he's going through them like, but does, does the party look like it was fun? And he's like, yeah, it does. Like, so, you know, he got to see that. No filter, like, like literally yeah. no filter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that kind of, I find that really interesting because I'm, I'm sure you've read some of Cal Newport's work. I, I just think that his take on um, the digitization of our world and then also the benefits of going analog with some of this digital technology. Uh, but what uh, one of the, the most fascinating findings of that experiment that he did with people where they opted out of all digital technologies, like all optional digital tech for a month, what people discovered was that the things that they replaced digital tech with were often 
um, analogs, like analog analogs of the same thing. So, you know, people who signed out of social media for a month would spend that time, those hours every week, reconnecting with people via a phone call or a coffee or, you know, a Zoom chat or whatever. And you had kind of done the same thing in that you took some of that time that you were spending absorbing endless amounts of information or sharing things um, to take like this analog social media approach. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's just a really worthwhile thing for us all to experiment with. It's like, what, what is it about this tech that I, like what need is it fulfilling and can I fulfill that need in an offline way, at least some of the time? Yeah. And and, I mean, the first thing you do is ask yourself those questions. And so you're doing that. We've been so conditioned to be excited about the next new thing that, I mean, I find myself rediscovering over and over again, the old things that I have so quickly forsaken for the new thing. And typically it is the digitized version of the analog or the real thing or the 3D thing. And in some instances, it's complete sense. And it's wonderful. If you travel a lot and you're a big time reader and you're going on vacation, I understand why a Kindle holds that lore to you because you can fit lots of books on there and you don't get sand on it. And it doesn't weigh as much as a book, but at the same time, I always challenge people like If you're only reading on that Kindle and you're no longer reading books, what are you losing? What is the feeling that is no longer being evoked or the thing that's being looked over? And so whenever, you know, people talk to me about this, they're like, what could I do so quickly to have better boundaries or or better balance? And I always say like top three items is like return to the analog things in your life. Like, yes, at first Pinterest was amazing. It's a utility now. I get why we need it, why we use it. I use it all the time, but it shouldn't replace all all of my scrapping that I did for years and years and years that brought me so much joy. So it's about finding those balances again um, with with the digitized version of our 3D thing. It was that beautiful, like a camera that was given to me on loan that made me rediscover how much I love slow film. And I think that idea of 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 slowness in our uh, in our creative pursuits is a really helpful, healthy way of reclaiming the idea of slow living. Uh, because I don't know about you, but I have spent the last few years kind of frustrated that slow as a movement has been co-opted by marketers, by people who are trying to make a lot of money, by, you know, it, it, it's become an aesthetic movement rather than, which is stuff related, right? Uh, rather than yes. maybe what it was initially created out of a need for, which is soulfulness, patience, time, exploration, curiosity. Uh, so that to me is a really powerful way, accessible way for everyone regardless of you know their circumstances to live some of the moments of their life slow you know by by using pen and paper by taking a photo on an old point and shoot camera that you found by you know um drawing by writing a letter to somebody you know they're all ways of adopting slow that aren't commercialized do you have you kind of found the same thing oh my god you mean um, you're not into the new slow line of um, dishware that will help you minimalize your life and solve all your problems. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, yeah, I just I I jumped off board so quick. I because I felt like in a way I almost created the problem, and so that's one of the reasons why I've been so quiet lately. Um, I guess my, my public space, if you will, um, because I know I didn't create the problem. I know it's, you put it best, it's just being co-opted, right? Um, I think what I set out, set out to do is so important and needs to be shared and um, let people know that there's an alternative way, but 
as soon as it gained traction, because everybody was burnt out and exhausted and depleted and not creative and overwhelmed and, you know, getting all these ailments defined as autoimmune and not sure like what's going on when really it's just the, the busyness and the oversaturation of their lives. And so it, 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 the movement took on a life of its own because it, it was good and it is good. And then came, you know, all the companies that wanted to tap into this new world of wellness. And so when they're using terms like digital detox, disconnect to reconnect and like adding, you know, this sort of digital minimalism, you know, my side now or slower living to their Rolodex of offerings or their new product line. At first you're excited because you're like, oh, I'm gonna bring attention to this thing. They have a louder than me, more eyeballs, they have your platform. But at the end of the day, and I have gotten some backlash for this because it's just products. Like it's just companies trying to sell you something. And so I was a part of it for a long, long time, both before I started Folk Rebellion as a brander and a marketer, but then as Folk Rebellion, what started out as just something very um, important to me, I felt like I was just another voice telling people what to do and to buy things. Now, I know that's not the case. I know our intentions are good and I know people need and want to hear it. I know how to have the conversations or be an inspiration or share information in a world where it seems like everyone's trying to get you to spend money or do something, you know what I mean? And I had a couple bad, um, I guess, partnerships or collaborations where I just was like, I can't, I can't put my name with this anymore. And so I just stopped. Um, so yes, I agree with you. I see it. I don't think my opting out completely is the right answer. Um, and I love to see you out there like a warrior standing up for what you know is so right. I mean, it's true. Um, and it's not to say that I'm out of it forever, for sure. I just coming back in a different way. Yeah. And I get it. Like I disappeared last year off. Uh, I mean, not in my real life, obviously, but I disappeared off all outward facing digital channels. And that was not planned. That was like burnout, much like you, you know, doom scrolling and caring way too much almost about the big, big global overwhelming issues uh, and not at all about the small stuff. And that right. deficit cost me big time. So uh, yeah, I, and I feel this tension, right? Because I don't ever want to be part of that. You must do this. You need to do that kind of scene. Uh, and I also, at the same time, believe fully in the work that you and I have done over the years. And I know that it can be, uh, you know, paradigm shifting because it has been for me. But yeah, it's like, how do you not add to the noise while also speaking to this very real problem that affects virtually everybody I know of being overwhelmed by life, you know, and by all the things that we should be doing. So I think it's um, that, that stepping away is a really necessary part of the reframing process and of figuring out what we want our lives to add up to. And that includes the work that we do. Yes. And, and I was going to say, like, my answer has fallen into the place of where I'm practicing what it is I was teaching or sharing or saying. And so for my stepping away, it was so healthy and so needed and creating abundance and happiness and all the things and, and becoming more creative for the first time in years, because you finally do what you tell everyone else to do. And, <laughs> and those spaces have allowed me to see like what's most important. And so, you know, I never thought that I was one to fall into this idea of like a savior complex or anything like that. But I felt so afraid of where we were going when I started Folk Rebellion seven, eight years ago. Um, and what I was leaving my son to in the world that I just felt I had to change it. I had to. 
and now I realize like, I'm just a small, small, small portion of that. And I don't have to kill myself and hurt my relationships and hurt my creativity to try and save the world in essence, i.e. to save him. I could really just start in my own backyard. And so that's what I've been doing. Yeah. And I think I, I've come to the realization that for me anyway, that is quite honestly the only way that I will be able to uh, instigate change is by going small starting in your own backyard because as you say if you've damaged your relationships your health you've lost that time for creativity for those things that fill you up that light you up with joy it's really quick that you realize you've got nothing to give you know that like you're drawing from an empty well and you draw up resentment rather than you know than joy than life than um, creativity uh, I wanted to talk to you about creativity, actually, because in in Care, the book that I've just released, I have a whole chapter about making, and I was really fascinated to find out, like to to kind of dig into the science behind making. You know, the act of making anything with our hands or you know whatever it may be, dance, singing, it is therapeutic in the most literal sense of the word. Um, what have you learned? about yourself through this reclamation of create of creative living you know I've always known that I was a maker um I like to make things I like to come up with an idea it could be anything literally anything from I'm what I want a garden in my backyard to I want to create a newspaper to I want to create an event that travels around the world and I only get to take 10 people it, it's the medium doesn't really seem to matter. It's the process of making. And uh, the only place that doesn't translate is the kitchen. And I so wish it did because I hate cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we'll, we'll, I'm going to keep trying. Um, And, you know, I find that, I guess it goes back to the technology. A lot of the making that I've done over the past decade or two went into screens because that is how we shared our creations. And so I, for a while, associated making with devices and therefore it didn't like devices. So I stopped making. And this time for me has been a rediscovery of that. I don't need to share or publicize what I've been making. I could just make it because it makes me happy. I can be creative in my own house and not tell anyone about it. I could write without anyone ever reading my words. And it's um, been really freeing and also like a total ego check of like, well, why did I do this for so long? And I don't know if it's that I just was good at that part of it. And so, and I was used to it or that's what everyone does. But um, I almost gave up being creative and making things because I was depleted by the sharing of it and, and or the creation of it. Cause a lot of it was created on, you know, devices. And so now I'm just playing with like entirely different mediums and collaborating that it could be kids like like zine making class where I teach them how to make like little newspapers and cut things out and collage um, to you know like I said writing and not letting anybody see it and it's just a it's been a really nice return to um, that feeling of joy of just getting lost in whatever it is you are going to make are you familiar with Jonathan Fields, um, the Life is Good project. Yes, I am. Yes. He he has, um, he's a big podcaster. He's been writing forever. He is creatively someone I look up to so much, but I also could call him dear friend. He's lovely. Um, He created this sparkotype sort of assessment. It's one of those personality assessments. And uh, it's like, who are you? And so I'm a maker maven. So what that means is, is I live to make, I don't even care if anybody sees it. So that was one of the big ahas for me. It was like, I didn't need to feel successful. I just needed to feel like I was making. And the second part is a maven. 
which means I vibe off of information and knowledge and reading as much as I possibly can about a subject. And so the way my mind works is I get fascinated on something. I consume as much knowledge as I can about it. And I use that to make something, which if you look at my resume and my history, it's like, holy shit, that's what I've been doing the whole time. The most fascinating part though, is I get trapped by what I've made because my lowest archetype is, uh, I forget what the title is, but it's basically the person who is really good with details and um, rapid communication and like logistics. And so that is my very bottom one in like a list of 30. And so everything I've ever made in my professional life has trapped me in the thing where I'm like ready to put it in the world. And then I have all these logistics and all these T's to cross and these I's to dot and all these people waiting for answers for me. And I'm like, but wait, I just made it. It's done. Bye. And like it. So yeah. So looking at it through that lens now of like, I don't need it to last. I don't need it to, or if it does, somebody else takes it over. Right. <laughs> so I think you'd be interested in that. Um, I think that I definitely would be interested in that. And I'm fairly certain that we're twins. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt there, Brooke. We've said it before. <laughs> Man, that's just like, I, I really do believe in the life shifting power of those little moments of discovery about ourselves. Um, because you could be like, oh, I'm not terrible at this thing. It's just, this is not my strength. This is my strength. And, you know, being able to right. apply that to the work that you do and why you do it and how you do it is really powerful. So I'm going to look that up and I'll link it in the show notes along with everything else that we've spoken about. Um, thank you for introducing me to that because that sounds really interesting. It is. It's super cool. And then the last piece is, is if you're lucky enough, you find the person who vibes out at the stuff you're bad at, and then they, you collaborate because they'll take your spreadsheets all day and figure out how to make it work seamlessly. So that's the goal. That is the end goal. That is a good goal. Uh, okay. I'm going <laughs> to let you know what I end up with because I'm very interested. Yes, please do. <laughs> I will. Um, just such an absolute heart lifting delight to talk to you i feel the same about you every time i wish i could give you a hug likewise one day one day it will happen you're a gem keep making stuff and um yeah i'll see you soon soon for a hug thank you so much brooke thank you Thanks, yes Jess. i will be saving a bar stool in brooklyn for you yes i cannot wait Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.